workstation to rest my eyes, the institutional fluorescence pulsed with a hazy but brutally piercing accuracy into my left eye. I worked in the phone room for our department that Friday, and as I sat there anticipating late cancellations, the upper left quadrant of my head ached viciously for most of the day. On the bus ride home, I tried reading my new book. That eternally satisfying joy and distraction was unavailable to me. Though, as I struggled to contain my nausea by closing my eyes and breathing deeply, movement of any kind threatened to infuriate my left eye, whose temper and zealous aggression were terrifying to the rest of me. I felt scared, again. I cowered in the face of my own utter powerlessness. Lying in bed with all the lights out and the air conditioning on? I had done that before. And even the lowing sighs and yips of pain have their own toothbrushes by now. But while the players are all familiar, the scenery and dialogue are always fresh. Welcome to Astrocytes number 7, Sensory Overload. I am your host, Andrew Rose, and today I want to talk about what it means for our brains when sensory input is overwhelmed. Lately, the relationship between my senses and the world seems to be on the rocks. This program's patron saint, J.M. Charcot, always taught his students to be clinical observers, to Charcot, it was the work of minute research and the grueling hours observing an individual patient that yielded new and effective insights into neurological disease. The immensity of a single patient's suffering seems beyond the grasp of any physician, but for the patient, it is the unavoidable work of a lifetime. Sometimes I think of Charcot when my brain seems incurably inflamed. Lately, I've been thinking about magnetic resonance imaging, my last few MRI results have been negative for new lesions, which is a very good thing and proof the miracle drug rituximab is working. But the reality is less reassuring. My walking has deteriorated greatly even in the past few months. My left arm is too weak to carry even a few sheets of paper. I hold the arm up to my abdomen as with a sling. It has become increasingly hard to cover up the fact of my encroaching disability. In fact, it is widely known that MS can progress, or become symptomatic, on absent new lesion activity. They are testing MRI machines that are more than twice as powerful, going from three Teslas to seven, and including spectroscopy to find the precise chemical composition of the lesions. The results show twice as many lesions in more areas of the brain and spine than current MRIs. But they make you nauseated, I'm told, and seeing more of anything wouldn't change my treatment regime anyway. Magnets notwithstanding, I've also been suffering from this endurance migraine for more than three weeks. Pain levels have gone down quite a bit on average, but my left eye is still in open rebellion. Glancing at any light source with it can produce serious pain or headache and an ocular insurgency. My vision in that eye is hazy most of the time, and part of my field of view is almost like looking through a prism. Light is diffuse and carefree when it meets my sinister eye, but the menacing cruelty of those same photons is never far away. It didn't take long for me to capitulate to wearing an eye patch, which helps a great deal but brings with it substantial new challenges. It often feels like many of these challenges are more like new, even permanent, boundaries separating me from my former self. 
Now that I've become accustomed to walking everywhere with my beechwood and orange silicone cane, it seems that my entire left side has had its disease acuity ratcheted up several dozen notches. As I write this, I've stopped half a dozen times to rest my unwilling left arm. The current asymmetrical warfare of razor-sharp javelins bursting through my left radius bone and landing with an electric pop on the surface of my skin has shifted to the background while I try to compose this letter. Instead, there is a sharp, stabbing pain in the joint of my elbow. The pain launches forward and lands fabulously on the palm of my hand. So that's typing. But the new degree of pins and needles pain is troubling and unpredictable even by neurological standards. At this point, I feel compelled to give the gentle listener a break from this miserable life of mine. It's hard to live with an enigmatic and mercurial disease like this when you are the type of person who must find the truth. Toward that end, I've been reading a lot of journal articles about the role of stress in MS. A 2005 article in the journal Multiple Sclerosis described a particular paradox well. R.F. Brown and the article's three co-authors write that, quote, MS patients are particularly vulnerable to a deteriorating cycle of life events, illness episodes, and disability. They continue by suggesting interventions that might arrest these downward spirals. However, the authors then say that the clinician must be judicious in attributing MS symptoms or relapses to stressful life events. They make the point, so obvious that it has eluded me till now, that if a patient is constantly looking at their life for the roots of relapse, they will inevitably blame themselves for disease progression. I need to take my own advice. I, I first tried to see the view from above, emulating the mythical bird punk, Pung was so immense and his lifespan so great that he had a sweeping understanding of earthly events. But, but Zhuangzi, who has recounted the story of Pung, writes of that bird, quote, Isn't it pathetic that people try to emulate him? End quote. The crickets and grasshoppers flitting about from leaf to leaf, branch to branch, should we emulate them? No. The story is about accepting the unknown as inevitable. MS is something that is happening to me and not something I can truly control. And yet I wrestle mightily with this creed of letting go, of focusing on reality as it is presented to you. I am torn between the need to live and the need to know. I torture myself wondering if there isn't something I can do to relieve this hell. The point to remember is that if I convince myself there is something I can do and I fail to discover it, then I have failed. Irvin Yalom writes in his hysterically realistic novel, Lying on the Couch, that the patient's regrets are set in stone now. The past is a locked door. We can only focus on not making new regrets. I've finally had time and energy enough to return to this long overdue installment of astrocytes. My miraculous part-time job in the physical therapy department has proven too much for me. I used up all my FMLA earlier this year, and I have no paid time off. Effectively, if I need to take time off because my eyes can't focus on the computer screen, I would be subject to dismissal. So I must conclude, sadly, that I can't stay at this job. I sent in my extended medical leave form today. I'll have to start paying COBRA for health insurance, but it might just be the best thing that could have happened. I have only very recently been granted a reprieve from the Sulpice and the Iron Maiden of migraine. 
In fact, I attribute the lack of active headache pain to an over-the-counter antihistamine. Clemestine fumarate, brand name Tavist, is currently in phase 2 trials to demonstrate that the drug can actually regrow myelin. This is an immense breakthrough. Until this study, conventional wisdom held that there was no way to repair the damage caused by MS. It sucked up the worst of my headache shortly after I took the first dose. Emily Dickinson called Hope the thing with feathers. Hope is extremely hard to maintain some days. When you question if you'll ever have another day without a migraine, and when your neurologist is a frigid flamingo, and when you find out there's a red label warning on your chart calling you, quote, potentially violent, well, there is plenty of room to wallow if one chooses to. One way to maintain hope is to go far beyond the bullshit your neurologist spews. There's the 59% of white matter and 95% of cortical lesions that can't be resolved on a conventional MRI. And there's the recent discovery that there are, in fact, lymph vessels in the brain. To show how slowly our understanding of the brain has evolved, we need to look only to the neurologists. For as long as the concept of lymph nodes has been accepted in medicine, doctors have denied their existence within the brain. Hope lifts you up, like Pung, and shows you the vista is far grander than what you hear in the exam room. Finally tonight, I'd like to talk about an article in The Atlantic titled, When Kids Have to Act Like Parents, It Affects Them for Life. This is a profoundly moving account of the emotional morass of a child who is made to care for their siblings or their parents. Because these children are always pulled in different directions and under constant threat from their parents' abuse, neglect, drug use, or other nightmares, their resultant life experience is profoundly and negatively affected. The author, Cindy Lamoth, references the groundbreaking studies of adverse childhood experiences. We now have evidence that children whose lives are disrupted like this, who suffer from any number of ACEs, are not only damaged emotionally, but are sometimes twice as likely to get cancer and other illnesses. Adverse childhood experiences are predictive of drug and alcohol abuse, as a natural response to a terrifying childhood is to seek the comfort of temporary kindness. Indeed, somatic responses to traumatic stress are very common. Autoimmune disorders are common among people with high numbers of ACEs, and the process of integrating such an early life is daunting. One thing I've heard over and over again from both parents is a keen desire to avoid giving me the kind of childhood they had. My maternal grandfather was an officer in the Navy, and they moved around constantly. My mother and my dozen moves before college surely rivaled theirs. My father always said he wanted me to choose my profession as his parents pressured him into cardiology. Yet he scoffs at my applying to Duquesne and screams at me to be grateful for 20 hours a week at 1995 per hour. His words say he loves me, or they did, but the fact is that his opinion of me has always been extremely pessimistic. You know, I, I always wanted a bigger family. My grandparents were either dead or emotionally barren. Part of my greatest sorrow has come from feeling like my parents are my only family. And, really, that just includes my mom now. So you stack up a few ACEs over the course of a young life, and the results are inevitably catastrophic. 
While we can struggle against our early years and even thrive despite the parental hellscape, it is impossible merely to survive and thrive. Lamothe makes the distinction between resilience as being tough and willing to put up with anything, as against the real meaning of resilience, which is being able to learn and grow from those sorts of experiences. And that's where we find ourselves. My application to Duquesne is all but finished. While I would like to go to school in the city, I don't have time to get the application materials together. I'm going to struggle against the broken record of my dad's mean dismissiveness. I am going to fight the instinct to flee conflict and see my head as forever on the chopping block. Well, this has been Astrocytes number seven. Uh, I am your host, Andrew Rose. Please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud if you want to leave us a review. That'd be great, too. As the evening sky grew dark, I hope you guys have a better week next week. And I hope we all can get a little happier. Twas then he felt alone and wished that he'd gone straight and watched out for a simple twist of fate.